Any good preacher or prophet worth his salt wants to be heard and taken seriously. Jeremiah is no different. He desperately wants his people to listen to him, to take what he says seriously, to learn from God, and thus be spared the pain of judgment and a life lived in exile. Jeremiah undoubtedly feels damned if he does and damned if he doesn't when it comes to delivering God's message. If he delivers the message, he only brings more pain and suffering upon himself. If he doesn't deliver the message, he risks paying even a bigger price at the hands of God. Instead of turning away from God and further isolating himself, as we might do in similar circumstances, Jeremiah engages God in a prayer of lament. Join pastors Kirk Sexton and Bruce Johnson as we discuss Jeremiah chapter 20 and how we as Christians can restore the lost art of lament and discover the power of honest wrestling with the questions that come with grief and suffering. Welcome to the Full Dig Podcast. I'm Pastor Kirk Sexton, and with me, as always, is my good friend and colleague, Pastor Bruce Johnson. Kirk, it's good to be with you, and I'm amazed that we're both so excited to be talking about lament. I know. It's kind of weird, isn't it, to be excited talking about lament? Either we're delusional or God is trying to do something in our hearts and minds uh, for our listeners today. Well, maybe we're excited for our listeners to hear why lament is so important for our Christian lives. Yeah, very important concept that uh, lament is part of our expression of faith in God. We trust that God rules and overrules all things. Mm. Otherwise, we wouldn't be raising up our laments to God. Well, let's begin by looking at the text we had on Sunday. You're going to begin reading a part of the scripture that Steve didn't read. Right. This is uh, more a narrative part in beginning at verse 1 of Jeremiah chapter 20. When the priest Pashur, son of Amir, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things, he had Jeremiah the prophet beaten and put in the stocks at the upper gate of Benjamin at the Lord's temple. The next day when Pashur released him from the stocks, Jeremiah said to him, The Lord's name for you is not Pashur, but terror on every side. For this is what the Lord says, I will make you a terror to yourself and to your friends. With your own eyes, you will see them fall by the sword of the enemies. I will give all Judah into the hands of the king of Babylon, who will carry them away to Babylon or put them to the sword. I will deliver all the wealthy of the city into the hands of their enemies, all its products, all its valuables, all the treasures of the kings of Judah, They will take it away as plunder and carry it off to Babylon. And you, Pashir, and all who live in your house will go into exile in Babylon. There you will die and be buried, you and all your friends to whom you have prophesied lies. Mm. And then Steve read um, chapter 20, verse 7 through 13. So listen to that. You deceived me, Lord. And I was deceived. You overpowered me and prevailed. I am ridiculed all day long. Everyone mocks me. Whenever I speak, I cry out, proclaiming violence and destruction. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. 
But if I say, I will not mention his word or speak any more in his name, his word is in my heart like a fire, a fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, I cannot. I hear many whispering terror on every side. Denounce him. Let's denounce him. All my friends are waiting for me to slip, saying, perhaps he will be deceived. Then we will prevail over him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a mighty warrior, so my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will fail and be thoroughly disgraced. Their dishonor will never be forgotten. Lord Almighty, you who examine the righteous and probe the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. Sing to the Lord, give praise to the Lord. He rescues the life of the needy from the hands of the wicked. That last verse you read, verse 13, is really an uplifting verse. It's talking about faith in God. So what happens next in the same chapter is Jeremiah goes very dark. Mm. So listen to what Jeremiah says then. Cursed be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Cursed be the man who brought my father the news, who made him very glad, saying, A child is born to you, a son. May that man be like the towns the Lord overthrew without pity. May he hear wailing in the morning, a battle cry at noon. For he did not kill me in the womb, with my mother as my grave, her tomb enlarged forever. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow, to the end my days in shame? Hmm. Very dark. Very dark, yeah. So you have a chapter that begins uh, dark with the curses against Pashur, the head priest in the temple. And then you have the meat of it, which is what uh, Steve concentrated on in his sermon. Mm -hmm. And then it goes dark again at the end, which is uh, uh, one of the forms of lament uh, down and then the the meat of it and then um, uh, darkness again. So one form of lament is darkness and then the meat of what you're saying and then darkness again. And that's what we see in Jeremiah 20. And Kirk, you've looked at the biblical genre of lament quite a bit. You've thought about that. I'd be interested in your perspective on not only this chapter, but uh, the biblical form of lament and its significance. Well, I would like to begin by reviewing what Pastor Steve said. Right. Uh, In his sermon, he said, lament is a form of praise. Mm -hmm. I don't think we often think of it that way. Not, um, not the first thing that comes to my mind. He says um, it was the proof of a relationship, and uh, I thought that was a good point. Um, he had third point was lament is participation in the suffering of others. Right. And so we see that in a lot of the Psalms are kind of corporate uh, lament or the, the lament of the community. So you join together with others in lament. And then um, his fourth point was lament is a prayer for God to act, right? There's an anticipation that God is going to do something. Yeah. So um, a couple of definitions of lament um, that I have come across. Uh, one is 
a passion, a passionate expression of grief or sorrow. Mm. And, you know, one of the things we hear in the church is, you know, people come to church and they put on their happy face. Right. You know, praise God, they're smiling, but inside, you know, they're very much not in that mood and they're hurting. And and I I think the church needs to give space for us uh, to a lament and be lamenting and to cry when we need to cry. Um, you know, I do grief share, and that is, I think, one of the things we do. We give people space. So that they can um, lament, mm-hmm. that they can talk about their sorrow or their grief. Right. Yeah. Uh, another good uh, definition is that lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. So, I mean, when we are lamenting, and, and traditionally in the, in the, um, in the Psalms, we, we have in the beginning the Psalm, you have a lamentations, lament, um, but you kind of always end on a note of, but you are God, and, and it is you who I trust. You know, that is typical. Um, I'll say that is typical because it's not always that way. Um, Psalm 39 and Psalm 88, for example, are two that do not end that way. So um, I'll be talking a little bit more about that in uh, my Reformed quote. But when we have an opportunity to lament, we are balancing belief in God's sovereignty at the same time recognizing that what we're going through is really hard. Yes. Yeah. And uh, and so this prayer language um, allows me to talk to God honestly about my struggles. It's an honest prayer. Mm-hmm. And I think if you look at the Psalms, we were talking about how Psalms are sometimes organized and structured. And I heard today one of three Psalms is lament. And we had some other people you know, obviously see them differently, but a lot of psalms have lament in them, for sure. That's right. Pastor Steve mentioned uh, one biblical expert thinking up to 70% of the psalms contain lament, and then he also mentioned the figure uh, two out of three psalms were psalms that had lament in them. Mm -hmm. The psalms of lament follow a pattern that usually begins with suffering and ends in glory. I say usually because of those two that I talked about. Um, you know, Psalm 13, if you were to study a psalm, that would be an, an easy one for our listeners to look at and to um, to find this pattern in that I'm going to talk about in a moment. But Psalm 13 is short, um, and it asks questions like, how long? The structure we find, too, is, is the person... Uh, or the lament is, you know, you turn to God, there is a complaint, uh, you ask for God's action, and then it ends in trust. And that's kind of a basic structure of the Psalms. You can think of uh, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or Psalm 44, um, where the psalmist says we're being killed all day long. And I say usually, again, because um, that's not the case for all of them. And then we know uh, Lamentations is kind of a long prayer of lament that was 
by most accounts written by Jeremiah. Yeah, that's a very structured lament, the Book of Lamentations. Yeah. Uh, and, alphabetic acrostic, uh, beginning with different letters of the Hebrew alphabet in, in order, uh, chapter by chapter. Yeah, and chapters, like the first three chapters are very, very dark. Is uh, Jeremiah, he says, but this is, I, this is um, my hope, basically. Um, he, he ends up saying... Um, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Yes, right? this I call to mind. Exactly. Thank you. Um, and so we're kind of taught there that we are to rehearse those things we know to be true, but at the moment we don't feel that way. We don't feel that they're true, right? Right. So that is why we want to, as even Christians, practice this language of lament so that we can rehearse these things we know to be true and then we can kind of come to a um, a feeling of I know this is true even when I don't feel it. So it's not a denial of the harm or the difficulty you're facing. Yeah. But uh, saying that that's real. And God's love, God's um, power, all of that is real too. Yeah. And I think for, for our world today, it's especially important that we have this, if you will, in our in our quivers or in our tool bag, um, because our world is so broken. Right. Yes. And so we might lament, for example, you know, how much we love control. Right. I mean, things seem so out of control, right? That's a dangerous thing to, for you to say, Kirk, because you have control of the control board right now yes. as we're, we're recording this. Well, and you now have no control. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. 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 But we could also lament how much we love and place our trust in our 401ks or our portfolios, for example. I don't know if you've noticed uh, our portfolios have taken a hit lately. I've heard things about that, yes. We might lament, for example, how much we place or how much hope we place in leaders and or science to get us through things. You know, these are some contemporary laments I think we could have as a community of faith. Um, we could lament that, that, that there's so much sin in the world and uh, corruption in governments. or And we could lament the sin and corruption we find within ourselves. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and we can lament the brokenness of this world and ourselves and our our need for Jesus, right? And then we remember Jesus. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, some of our texts in Scripture leads us to think that, well, you know what? I can't really feel this way because if I feel this way, am I really a Christian, right? You know, texts like 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 says, Rejoice always. Um, one of my favorites is James. Consider it all joy when you consider or when you encounter various trials. You know, not very good pastoral advice to someone who's in the midst of a trial. It's not the first thing I think of. I'm going through something tough. Oh, praise God, this is a great thing. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's why we need to to explore these psalms of lament and and just, you know, I think, for example, like 77, Psalm 77, there, there's questions that we ask, right? We'll say, will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? 
Um, has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? These are these are really raw emotions that we really feel when we're really grieving and or you know going through a various various trials. And, and certainly what Jeremiah expresses at the end of this chapter is very raw, very yeah, visceral. Yeah. Wish he hadn't been born. He, yeah. he brings curses down on the person that brought news to his dad. Hey, you've got a son. <laughs> really, really dark. Right. So uh, it may be helpful to talk about what led up to this in Jeremiah's own life. What were his complaints, things that he was dealing with. So uh, remember uh, Jeremiah's call in the first chapter. It happens in the 13th reign, or 13th year of the reign of King Josiah. And when Josiah was in the 18th year of his reign, that's when he has this uh, real turnaround religiously. And uh, we read in 2 Kings chapter 22 that um, he begins to, uh, uh, well, they find this book in the temple that uh, talks about uh, all of the things that God commands. Probably the book of Deuteronomy is rediscovered at that point. And it's read and King Josiah tears his clothes. He orders that the high priest and the doorkeepers removed from the Lord, Lord's temple all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He takes the Asherah pole that had been set up in the temple itself and he burns it, crushes the ashes, scatters them in a valley. Tears down the quarters of the male shrine prostitutes that were in the temple. And he desecrated Topheth, which is the area in the Valley of Hinnom, where they would uh, sacrifice children to foreign gods and goddesses. Hmm. Uh, desecrates that um, so that no one could use it to sacrifice their son or daughter. Fire to Molech, we're told in uh, 2 Kings chapter 23. Then that righteous king, Josiah, he dies in battle. He's killed in battle by uh, Pharaoh Necho. And we read in Second Chronicles 35, Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah, and to this day all the male and female singers commemorate Josiah in, in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel and are written in the laments. Mm. So it's talking about the, the sorrow of Jeremiah. He was able to it all down in words, and that was helpful for the people to lament together about the death of their beloved king. Mm. Then Jeremiah is dealing with the new king that's on the throne now. Um, first, it was a king, um, uh, one of the kings that was the son of uh, King Josiah, and then he was kicked out by ne Necho, and then his brothers put in place, uh, Jehoiakim, and uh, Jeremiah is there recalling in chapter 19 again Topheth. Now, why does he say Topheth with it's already been destroyed? He's saying that because he, he's got a reminder, you know, the stakes are still there. The choice is still before the people. If you uh, turn to the Lord, if you trust in him, God can change what he, the, the evil, the destruction that he had designed and planned. But if not, you know, it, what happened to Topheth, its desecration, its destruction is going to happen to the whole city, mm. right? So Jeremiah says those words, and he's beaten up and put in prison. Earlier in chapter 17, Jeremiah had said, the prophets that lie, everything's okay with them, but I'm getting 
harassed because I'm telling the truth. So mm-hmm. th- that's the struggle at this point with Jeremiah. He's being faithful to God. He's doing what God has said uh, for him to do. Um, he had some success with the former king, and now a new king's on the throne, and everything's going to hell in handbasket. Well, and if he would have maybe had a really pleasant word, not the word of the Lord, um, he probably would have been praised and treated well by the people, but they didn't like that harsh word from the Lord. Yes, and of course we have that same thing that we find in Jeremiah where it has words that are about terrible things, and yet they're written very well. Uh, here in the part that is right in the middle of the part that uh, Pastor Steve read out loud in worship uh, yesterday, he, the Hebrew word yakol, which means prevail, is used four times in the space of just a couple of verses in verse 7 and 9 and 10 and 11. You have that same Hebrew word used, prevail, prevail, prevail. And, and it's an example of uh, that uh, tendency in Jeremiah's writing to to, to recall and repeat things as, as a form of literature. It's, again, great Hebrew poetry, but about awful, awful things. Mm. So we know that we are people of hope. We trust in Christ. So how do we face things that are difficult and hold on to hope in, in the same time? Mm. So the different places in the New Testament that talk about that very thing, uh, why don't you... You read one of those from 2 Corinthians, and I'll read one that comes from 1 Peter. Okay. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So holding up the, the reality of tough times and the hope that we have in Christ, that both are true, both are happening. It's interesting. He uses a lot of that language that Jeremiah talks about, the um, struck down and destroyed, and some of that same language is used in Jeremiah. I wonder if Paul is reflecting on that. And of course, he starts with that uh, jars of clay, and we've talked about Jeremiah and the, the potter, and then Jeremiah and the pottery that he smashes against the wall. Yeah, yeah, um, I think very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the other passage that came to my mind in thinking about holding on to hope in the midst of troubles from the New Testament is First Peter chapter four. Uh, I'll begin the reading at verse twelve. Dear friends. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come up on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. 
if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. But praise God that you bear that name. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Very practical advice. You know, trouble will happen. And remember, Jesus suffered too. We uh, participate in his suffering and we're called to continue to do good. That is, that is really good. Good, hopeful word for us there. Now, Bruce, we were in our meeting with the pastors on Thursday morning, and I suggested to you that it might be good for our archaeology section to talk about what it is when we say stocks, what, what kind of apparatus or what kind of stocks would Jeremiah be put into by this uh, temple guard? So you're asking, archaeologically, mm-hmm. what stocks, what uh, bindings do we have for prisoners from the Iron Age II period? Exactly, yes. And the, Iron Age, and the answer to that is, none that I know of. Oh. <laughs> so that's, that's pretty bad. But we, we do have some sculptures, uh, depictions, you know, bas-relief sculptures from um, the palaces in Assyria and from uh, different um, pal- uh, temples in, or uh, funeral monuments in Egypt that show us prisoners. Uh, and part of the problem is we're dealing with a word that's not very common in Hebrew. When we look at the uh, verses in chapter 20 of Jeremiah that talk about Jeremiah being in the stocks, it's amethechet, that's the, the stocks. And that's only used four times mm-hmm. uh, in all of Hebrew scripture and can be translated either as stocks or as the prison itself. Mm-hmm. There is a more precise word for um, stocks in Hebrew, and that word is sad. Mm-hmm. That's how you pronounce it, sad. And I tell you, if I was in stocks, I'd be sad too. Thank you for that Ken laughter. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, I was, I'm reminded and somewhere I had, you know, like a Old Testament survey course and, and studied and, and I remember there just, there wasn't prisons uh, in this day and age, you know, they really didn't, they either just killed you or, um, or they, you know, sent you into, you know, Babylon or whatever, but they didn't, they didn't really have prisons. So I was really curious about whether or not we knew anything about stocks. Well, if we look at the Hebrew root uh, in Hebrew language, it's always, you construct the language by three consonants for, that have a particular meaning and that's developed into a number of words. So when you look at that word used for the stocks here in uh, Jeremiah 20, it comes from a root word, which means to turn or to turn over. And when you look at the um, bas-relief sculptures in Assyria from about this time, from the 7th century BC, you see prisoners being taken away, 
and their arms are bound behind them in such a way that it's, their arms are stretched behind them and then either bound um, in their upper arms or at their elbows or at their wrists. You see the same thing in uh, earlier bas-relief sculptures in funerary monuments in Egypt where you have prisoners, they look very uncomfortable, uncomfortable because their arms are stretched back of them and again tied either at the upper arms or at their elbows or at their uh, wrists. So I think what's going on with Jeremiah is that his arms are bound in some unnatural way and uh, he spends that time with his arms bound mm. uh, as he goes uh, and stays in the prison that's in the near the uh, upper chambers of Benjamin, that means probably to the north because uh, the tribe of Benjamin, the territorial tribe, is to the north of Jerusalem and it would have been on the north side of the temple. Mm. But that's about as much as I can say. All right. Yeah, but so very different than what you would see, say, a pilgrim in the stocks where their arms are in front of them. Right. And it's probably the other way that their arms are behind them. Right. Well, good work, Bruce. That's the best I can do, Kurt. Well... It was good work. I gave you the assignment, and you fulfilled it with great joy. And spent far more time than I should have trying to figure that out. (laughs) Well, each week we've had a look at our eco-theological documents and our essential tenets. Uh, What did you find in that for us today? Well, I looked at the part of the essential tenets that talks about God's grace, because uh, we mess up, and Jeremiah is talking about how the nation is messed up and needs to repent, and the nation doesn't, and destruction is coming on the way. So what is God's design for us? Because uh, I mess up, you mess up. We, it's part of our life. We, we try to get better, and God helps us, uh, but we are not perfect, not the side of glory. So this is from uh, the Central Tenets, Section 3, um, Part A, God's Grace in Christ. Progress in holiness is an expected response of gratitude to the grace of God, which is, as a result of sin, human life is poisoned by everlasting death. No part of human life is untouched by sin. Our desires are no longer trustworthy guides to goodness, and what seems natural to us no longer corresponds to God's design. We are not merely wounded in sin. We are dead unable to save ourselves. Apart from God's initiative, salvation is not possible for us. Our only hope is God's grace. We discover in Scripture that this is a great hope, for our God is the one whose mercy is from everlasting to everlasting. This grace does not end when we turn to sin, although we each are each deserving of God's eternal condemnation. The eternal Son assumes our human nature, joining us in our misery and offering himself on the cross in order to free us from slavery to death and sin. Jesus takes our place both in bearing the weight of our condemnation against our sin on the cross and in offering to God the perfect obedience that humanity owes him but is no longer able to give. All humanity participates in the fall into sin. Those who are united through faith with Jesus Christ are fully forgiven from all our sin, so that there is indeed a new creation. We are declared justified, not because of any good that we have done, but only because of God's grace extended to us in Jesus Christ. 
in union with Christ, through the power of the Spirit, we are brought into right relationship with the Father, who receives us as his adopted children. I like that so much. In my study of lament, um, I'm reminded in Psalm 53, it says, Jesus is a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Um, He is fully in touch with um, our nature and our and our and our sin. Um, he didn't sin. He is without sin, but he is acquainted with it. He knows what we're going through. Jesus gets us. Mm-hmm. Jesus gets us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and here it is. He's in this as well written. He's he's a friend of sinners and those who suffer. Yeah, yeah. does for us what we can't do for ourselves. Yeah, yeah. it's very good. All right. All right. I like that. Well, Bruce, each week we also have a quote from uh, C.S. Lewis, and there was some uh, discussion in our pastor's group of what that should be. What did you come up with? I came up with something that's from the uncollected letters of C.S. Lewis, which is a project that uh, I'm working on with uh, scholars in uh, four countries right now, trying to gather all of the Letters of C.S. Lewis and letter fragments that did not make it into the three-volume collected letters of C.S. Lewis. This is a sneak peek. This a sneak is, peek, yes. Wow, we should have told the people that if they stayed tuned, there was a gift at the end. Yes, well, well, well shh, it's not public yet. <laughs> Press release will come out in January. But anyway, okay. so this is a letter that uh, Lewis wrote to the priest that married he and his wife. Hmm. And the priest was going through something. Of course, Lewis and his wife at this time were also going through something. She was quite sick with Mm. cancer. And so they're trying to comfort one another. Mm. So this is from uh, the end of April of 1959. Lewis writes, Indeed, indeed, we both will. I don't see how any degree of faith can exclude the dismay, since Christ's faith did not save him from dismay in Gethsemane. We are not necessarily doubting that God will do the best for us. We are wondering how painful the best will turn out to be. In a case like the one you refer to, where the growth is detected in its primary state and in the most operable part, there are, of course, solid grounds for an entirely optimistic view. But then one of your fears and hers is of all the fears you will have to suffer before you are out of the woods. The monotony of anxiety, the circular movement of the mind is horrible. As far as possible, I think it is best to treat one's own anxiety as being also an illness. I wish I could help you. Can I? You did so much for me. Mm. What I love about that is um, Lewis's honesty, that it's really tough to go through difficult things, particularly when somebody that you love is facing hardship. It's really, really tough. Mm. And at the same time, he says, how can I help? Is there anything I can do? Uh, really, you know, share it, trying to share the burden as much as he can. I think that's a, a great response for all of us when we see our friends going through tough stuff. Mm. Uh, how can we help? What, what can we do? How can we pray for you? Mm. That is really good. Now, you came up with something from our Reform Heritage. Well, I have this book uh, from Tim Keller. It's called Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. It's from 2013. Mm-hmm. Interesting that... Tim himself is going through his own season of pain and suffering. Right, with cancer. 
Yes. Um, the chapter's called Weeping, but it's all about Christian lament. Mm. So um, this is a bit of reflection on Psalm 88. As we read this, we learn first that believers can stay in darkness for a long time. Oftentimes, uh, people going through grief and grief share, Bruce, uh, they're told, you know, one year, right? Right. But th- that's not how it works. It's different for everybody. There, there is no timetable. Um, so I really liked um, this first statement that believers can stay in darkness for a long time. Three times in the psalm, the word darkness occurs. Uh, verse 7, verse 12, verse 18. The effect is to say it is possible to pray and pray and endure and things not really get any better. Mm. The psalm ends without a note of hope. And so its teaching is that a believer can live right and still remain in darkness. Darkness may symbolize either outside difficult circumstances or an inner spiritual state of pain. That is the very realistic, tough message of the center of this psalm. Things don't have to quickly work themselves out, nor does it always become clear why this or that happened. One commentator wrote, whoever devises, whoever devises from Scripture a philosophy in which everything turns out right has to begin by tearing this page out of the volume. <laughs> in other words, uh, God is greater than our theology. Yeah, and, and I just think this gives people that are in, you know, who are mourning, who are grieving, who are going through a difficult time, we, we need to give those people space, allow them to be in that darkness. In fact, it may be where God wants us to be. It's a hard thing to, you know, because we, especially dudes, you're a dude, I'm a dude, we like to fix things. We do like to fix things. And we want to prescribe, oh, pray this, pray, read this book, and things will be better. But that doesn't, that's not the realistic way of of our lives. And sometimes um, we may have to linger in darkness for a long time. And so we have to learn not to go to fix things right away, but to just be mm-hmm. uh, with our friends. We don't have to have the right words. We just, yeah. just be with them. I'm here. Earlier in this same chapter, there was someone who was going through a, a difficult time, and, and this person shared that you know they offered a lot of help. And then there was another person who just sat with them and was present with them. And you know, and the work we do as pastors in... Um, difficult times, you know, there's not words for many of these things. And sometimes the best thing we can do is just be present. I knew a woman once, and whenever there was a death of somebody in, in the church, she would make this big sheet of cinnamon rolls, mm. great cinnamon rolls, and she'd bring them over because she knew people in the church would be coming over to, to talk, and gave them something to do so they didn't have to talk they could just have coffee and cinnamon rolls Mm. and just be together yeah that's a nice ministry ministry of cinnamon rolls and i love cinnamon rolls i do too good thing the (laughs) holiday house is coming soon right exactly nice plug (laughs) well can i pray for us bruce oh that'd be great Kurt. lord jesus 
We thank you that you know what it is to suffer. You know pain. You know suffering. And we thank you. We thank you that you've helped us in your word to understand what's wrong with the world. Lord, today we lament over the presence of sin that creates diseases and death and suffering. This creates tension and frustration and anxiety. Lord Jesus, we ask you to give us the grace to be able to not just endure this pain, but the grace to be able to follow you faithfully in it. Thank you that your word is true and we never lack anything that we need in order to follow you and obey you. And so we pray. We pray for believers who are listening today that you would grant them special grace to follow you faithfully one more day, to keep trusting you, trusting you in every moment, every day. And we thank you that you are the one, Jesus, who keeps, keeps us in your grace and helps us to trust you because we keep reminding ourselves of your faithfulness. And Lord, we know you hear our tears, you hear our groanings, and in our sorrow we, we take it uh, to you in prayer, and we, we look for refuge in you. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thanks, you, Kirk. Thank you, Bruce. <laughs>